Exodus 19. <laughs> Exodus 19, verse 4. God is speaking. You yourselves know, uh, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. We saw that last week. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now let's go to chapter 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall, make, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath. Or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So remember, verse 8, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner, that's a stranger, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbors. <laughs> Let us pray. Lord, we, we pray that you would strengthen my voice tonight. Um, help me to make it through this. Give me strength as well. Um, and Lord, I pray for our whole group that you would strengthen our minds to accept your word and that you would soften our hearts to be shaped by it. God, we pray that in all things we would become a people, a priesthood, who glorify you and represent you to the nations of this earth. So give us grace to obey your commands. And we're looking for that tonight. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, history is what we're looking at, of course, the story of God. And basically what we, what this, this, does when we look at the whole Bible is essentially this. We start in the Garden of Eden. It's a perfect, happy place of peace and pleasure. It's our home. It's where we were made to be, to have fellowship and communion with God. And then, at the end of the Bible, at the end of God's story, we see at the same place as Eden. We're going to be happy and restored with God and being in His fellowship with peace, a place of peace and pleasure. But in the middle of this story, there's a dramatic problem that happens. Adam whom God created to serve him, actually rebels against God, sides with the serpent, 
and begins to create his own law, his own rule in life. He becomes his own author of his own story. I'm in control. And then God loves man so much and wants to restore him to himself that God steps into the scene and says, Abraham, I'm going to use you and your offspring, Israel, to bring restoration. In other words, to restore man to the Eden that they lost. I'm going to bring man back to the garden to be with me where I can be their God and they can be my people and we can have relationship. The death that they're experiencing will turn into life. The dryness will turn into to abundance and fruit and prosperity. So that's basically the story. We have paradise and Eden, a fall, and then God's work of restoration to bring us back to Eden. So what we've been looking at is the restoration process, and that's really a big chunk of the Bible. From Genesis 3 on, it's the restoration process. So we saw um, last week that Israel was in Egypt, right? And they're exiled from God's presence. They're not in Eden. They're outside of Eden. And they're no longer in a place where God is the ruler. They're in a place where the serpent is the ruler. The serpent is Pharaoh and his people. And Pharaoh is oppressing them. And he's killing their children. And he's making life miserable for them. So God comes and he rescues, he delivers Israel out of Egypt. Why? Because he wants to set them to a new Eden, a new land where they can be restored with God. And that's where we are. We're on the way following Israel to their new Eden, which is called the land of Canaan, also known as the promised land, right? So that's where they're going. They're going to experience restoration there if they keep God's commandment, if they keep his covenant, which is what we look at tonight. So... Oh, man. That's never good. So let me remind you guys, so you know what we're about to look at. You remember in creation, God had this planet, and it was filled with just nothing but water. It's called it chaotic waters, what we've been calling it, because it's lifeless. It doesn't promote life. And God, in verse 2 of Genesis 1, sends His Spirit over the water, and the Spirit moves over the water, and the waters begin to recede, and creation begins to ascend. And then there's life, and God begins speaking. And as He speaks, things happen. And He's like a king. Nothing stands in His way. He just simply speaks, and everything begins to happen, unrivaled, unchallenged. And He speaks ten times. In Genesis 1, you can count ten times the phrase, God said. So his creation happened through his spirit over water and then his voice speaking ten times. And you had creation. You had this new place. You had life. Something something that was meant for life and people to live in. Well, what we've seen so far in Exodus is Israel was released from Egypt. And how did God do this? They came to the Red Sea and there were waters. And God sent a wind, or it's his spirit, it's the same exact Hebrew word. And his spirit begins to move across the Red Sea. And the Red Sea parts. And Israel goes through it. And Egypt follows. And then the waters cover the chaotic serpent. And they are smashed and crushed. And they're gone. And Israel's moving on. So we see that God is mirroring creation with what he's doing with Israel. 
He's beginning to make a new creation. His spirit moves over water. Israel comes out on the other side. And now, in Exodus 20, we come across what you guys know as the Ten Commandments, right? Ten Commandments. God speaks ten times. So here again is a parallel of creation. He is, what God is doing with Israel is he's essentially saying, me, the God who created Eden, is the God who's going to create a new nation so that I can bring restoration to every nation on this earth. The Eden that man lost, I'm recreating in Israel. So that's why we have this parallel between creation and Israel. So that's where we're going. And God is is working with Israel, creating them to give them the special mission to bring all of the exiled nations back into Eden with himself. Man, this is horrible. Okay, so the way that God does this is through a covenant. I probably have to try to stop this off, I guess. Through a covenant. <laughs> a covenant. <laughs> so they came out of the Red Sea, and God's been leading them, and they come to Mount Sinai. Now, this is cool because if you remember, Eden was a mountain in which God dwelt on the top. And there were three zones of holiness there was the outer wilderness, we don't know what exactly it was, it was the outer parts. And then there's the holy place on the mountain, and then the holy of holies on the top of the mountain where God was. Well, they come to Sinai, a new mountain. And on the outside, God tells Israel, Stay here, this is for everybody's place. And then on the mountain itself was a holy place. And God said, If anyone touches the mountain, they shall be shot to death with an arrow. And then on the very top of the mountain, God descended in fire, and only Moses could go up there. So, Eden was a temple, a place where God lived and met with man, and Mount Sinai is a temple. So, here we see the acts of restoration, bringing man back to relationship with God, is beginning to happen. And here, when God comes down on fire on top of the mountain, Israel's terrified, and he makes a covenant with them. Now, what is a covenant? A promise. <laughs> Yes, it is a, that was a rhetorical question, sir. But that's a good answer. Oh, uh, <laughs> no worries. A covenant is a relationship that's sealed in blood and initiated by God and dictated by God. So God, God says, here's man, I want a relationship. He initiates it and he dictates the terms of this covenant and then sheds blood to seal the deal. And that's what's going to happen here. The blood that's going to be shed is an animal. But God is initiating and dictating this relationship with Israel. Look look what he says in 19.5. He says, If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. He's talking about you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. There's going to be a relationship here. So this covenant is the start of restoration. This is, this is a good beginning to be with God. And then it's giving them this covenant. And as they obey the covenant, he's going to bless them and turn their promised land into an Eden. But if they disobey his covenant, then Canaan, their promised land, is going to just be a wasteland and nothing's ever going to happen. So God is calling Israel into a commission, into a mission that he has for them. So this covenant, we're going to see has two parts 
And the first part is a commission. So I'm making a relationship with you because I'm going to send you on a mission. Here's my commission to you. The second part then is the condition. There needs to be conditions for the covenant to work. God's going to do these things for and through Israel if they keep the conditions of the covenant. So the commission and the condition. Let's look at the commission first. That's what we read in chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Basically what God does here is his covenant is going to commission Israel to go and cultivate restoration among the nations. He's going to call them to live such a way that the nations around them are going to see that this is what man was made to be and do. There's going to be an Eden created in the way they live. And the nations are to come and they're to expand it to the nations. This is their commission. So look at verse 5. Now, therefore, 19.5, if you indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured people among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And, here we go, here's the commission. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he wants them to be a kingdom of priests, what in the world, (laughs) and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests does not mean that God wants them all dressed in black with white backwards collars and holding um, incense in their censers and going around to the people blessing them in Latin. Blessed be thee, we're here to welcome you to God's presence. Like, no, that's not what he means by he wants them to be priests. In the Bible, the role of a priest was basically a representative He represented God to the people. So when the people wanted to know what does God have to say or how do we come worship God, they come to the priest who's the representative of God. But on the same side, he represents to God the people. So when he he will pray to God on behalf of the whole nation. In other words, the priest is a middleman. The guy that goes in between both groups to represent both to each other. Um, Jesus is called our great high priest. Why? Because that's exactly what he does for us. He represents God the Father to us, and he also represents us to God the Father, so that we can have relationship with God through the perfection of Jesus. So that's what a priest is. He's a representative of God. And that's what God means when he tells Israel, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. Just like Adam in Eden. Do you remember that? In chapter 2, verse 15, God tells Adam, you're, you're my priest. I'm adding that in. Because what he really says is, here you are, I'm putting you in the garden, in Eden, and your job is to work it and to keep it. And you might remember that, the, that those two words, work and keep, every time those words are used together, it refers to the duties of a priest. And so what God was literally telling Adam was, you're my priest, so cultivate the garden, work it and keep it, protect it from uncleanliness. That's what priests do. So Adam, I'm putting you in the garden as a priest and make the garden grow, cultivate it, make my presence expand to the ends of the earth. And and then he takes Israel and he's doing the same thing. I'm putting you in Canaan, a new Eden, and I'm making you my priests. So work it and keep it. Cultivate my rule. Cultivate my presence so that it expands to every single nation. 
I want those exiled nations to come back into fellowship with me, to experience Eden on this earth once again. That's what he's calling Israel to. Be my priests and take my presence where you go, to the neighboring nations and to those beyond that. So, be my representatives. There's going to be a couple of those awkward moments, so... That was beautiful. Do I drink really well? You guys want the logo out? Crystal geyser? <laughs> okay, so holy... That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the priesthood. Now he wants to make them a holy nation as well. It's the second part of his commission. It, it's almost the same, but holy nation gives you a little bit of a difference. Um... Because what holy means is to separate something for special use. <laughs> so appropriate that Mr. Payne is in the room tonight. Because <laughs> many of you have heard the story about when I had to loan my deodorant to somebody. I think a lot of you have heard that before. It was gross. You don't want to loan your deodorant to people. If you plan on using it again. Because my deodorant, it's set apart from my armpits. I'm not going to share it with Whitney. <laughs> Here, Whitney, you want some? Thanks, I got my other one now, too. Here, you can use yours, too. Like, sharing all this, like, sweat and body underarm stuff. And it's just, I don't know. And especially when, like, you know, you could get your deodorant back from something and there's, like, a little hair on it. You're like, um, just throw this away. That's what deodorant is supposed to be. It's set apart for you, for special use. It's not to just be given out, to be used around. Um, that's just because pain's here, I use that one. Or the toothbrush is maybe more direct. The toothbrush is used for your mouth. It's set apart for that use. You're not going to use the same toothbrush for the toilet bowl or the bathroom floor. That's what I use Johnny's toothbrush for. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, so that's basically what it means to be holy God wants Israel to be a holy nation you're a nation that's separated from the others for a certain task and it's my task it's my mission I'm giving you to become priests to the nations and so what you see is that this covenant that God gives them it invades every single part of their life it's called the law in the Old Testament and this law affects everything from their family, their recreational life, their religion, their relationships, their economics, and their politics, their education. Everything is affected by this covenant. God gives rules that makes them become a holy nation in everything they do. It's not just like their religious thing. Okay, we go to the temple, we're holy people now. Now we just live like the rest of the nations. There was no dichotomy like that. Their whole life was holy. It was set apart for God's glory as they lived in obedience to the covenant. So God is basically the short of what God's commission to them is, is that he wants Israel to be holy priests, set apart people, being priests to the nations so that they can cultivate restoration everywhere around them and let God's restoring glory bring them back to himself across the world. You get it? God's using Israel to reestablish Eden on earth. But there's conditions to this covenant. That's
as the commission. You're going to go and bring restoration to the nations. You're going to bring them back to me and Eden will be established. But there's conditions to it. So let's look at those in chapter 20. The conditions are what we call the Ten Commandments. I like the word condition better though. Because don't think about God as being bossy here. Think about him as giving them guidelines for how to fulfill their commission. If they break these commandments, they're failing to meet the conditional requirements of what it means to be a holy priesthood. As they break the commandments, they're not being holy and they're not being a priesthood. So I like to call them conditions. Ten conditions. Um, The first four deal with Israel's worship of God. The last six deal with Israel's relationship with people. So he's, you guys sound like First John, right? Loving God, loving others. Well, the Ten Commandments are based upon this. So the first four, how is Israel to relate with God? How are they to worship Him? And the first commandment is in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Or, do not replace God as the supreme treasure of your life with other substitute gods. When he says he shall have no other gods before me, he doesn't mean before me in priority. Like, like don't make me second. Don't make other gods ahead of me and make me like second or third place. That's not what he's saying. It's given that the deliverer of your nation should be first place. When he says you shall have no other gods before me, he means no other gods in my presence. Like you're before me. So don't come to God and come with him with all these other idols and passions and say, I have these, but you're still my priority love. God says, forget it. You're cheapening the supreme passion that I should be in your life. Don't bring these other things before me. Get rid of them altogether. I am number one in priority and the only one, period. So don't replace me as your supreme passion and treasure with other little gods. Number two, verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or an idol. And this one's basically don't deface God's infinite glory with something finite. God is limitless. And the minute you make an idol, you're limiting who he is into that little image or that little definition. And God can no longer become bigger than that thing. So don't deface his infinite glory with something so finite and temporary and limited. Don't even go there. That's what um, all the nations do. By the way, Israel is the only nation that didn't actually have an idol of their God. They were unique. And it was to say to the world, we have a different God. The third one is verse 7. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. This does not refer to bad language. Like most people say, oh, don't take God's name in vain. You said, people who believe Jesus Christ. (laughs) It's actually referring to using God's name to manipulate selfish purposes. Um, Yes, when he didn't. So, for example, you'll hear televangelists, if you send us all your money, God will give you lots of cars and nice stuff. They're manipulating God's name and power to get something from you. Or the classic, as um, I think you guys have maybe heard or even been guilty of saying before. You, you just actually like, treat a girl like trash, just dump her, and you're like, 
God told me to break up with you, sorry. And then you showed no love of God, just treating her like she's just rejected and worthless. Um, okay, I don't deny that God might tell you to break up somebody, but don't throw his name in the mud like that, okay? That's using God's name in vain. Just justifying what I do because God told me to. The fourth commandment in 20 verse 8, or condition. Um, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Now, the, I think the purpose of this was so that Israel remembers their relationship to God. God is the creator king. He made the earth, and Israel is simply the under king working under God, the creator. So that what we need to realize is that our work is in relation to the reason God made the world. He made it, and he put Adam in it and said, cultivate this and expand it. So Adam's to work remembering why he's working. I'm not working just to make money or just to have bread. My job is more than that. It's to expand and further God's presence and glory in everything I do and touch. So the Sabbath, taking that day of rest, reminds us that work is not the primary reason. It's to refocus upon God and say, I work because of him. Because he's the creator. And so he takes Sunday to worship and glorify the creator. Alright, the second um, section, relationship to others. You see the fifth commandment in verse 12. Honor your father and mother. I think the point is that Israel and, and people, your relationships with others and primarily your parents is not optional. The relationship is necessary. It's not like you can just treat your parents however you feel. It's not like they're only necessary for a certain amount of years in your life. God gave those people to you not to hinder you, but to prosper your development so that you can become a person restored with God in his presence. The family unit's meant to help that. And so we're not to see relationships as disposable or optional. They're mandatory under God's sovereignty. And as you guys become parents, it's, you will see that you are to be running your family as a unit that cultivates that restoration with God. You're not just the boss of your kids. You're not just yeah, raising you guys, just to get you out of the house and go to college. Like, you're investing in them. You're trying to bring them to Eden to live with God all the days of their life. That's what it's meant to be. And then the last commandment, 6 through 10. They all essentially deal with, you know, the direct things you do with other people, such as don't murder people, that's bad. Don't steal, don't lie against them, don't gossip against them, all those things, don't covet. The point of those is to say that our relationship with each other is to reflect that we are underneath God's covenant, that we are underneath the covenant that is trying to recreate Eden upon this earth so that we're to treat each other like that, not just our selfishness, but we're holding each other as more important than ourselves. So, with, um, <coughs> with all that put in order, Israel's covenant with God, the commission, be my holy priest to bring restoration to the nations, and then the conditions, ten of them, accomplish these things, obey these things, so that you can fulfill the commission. Because as you break these conditions, you're not going to be a holy priesthood. You're not going to see Eden cultivated in your midst. So keep my conditions. So that's the covenant. But what about us? Where do we find ourselves in this part of the story of God? Are we just way past this because we're New Testament church Christians? 
And this is Old Testament. No. This is very much our place in God's story still. It's what the Bible calls the new covenant. Right? This is the first covenant that God makes with Israel. And we're part of the second covenant, the new covenant. It's um, Jeremiah, write this down if you don't want to turn there. You definitely want to know what this is. Jeremiah 31, 31. This is how God describes it. Behold, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. That covenant they broke. So you see that? What we're looking at tonight is called the old covenant. God's making a new covenant. That's the one when he took them out of Egypt. That's the old covenant. They broke it. Verse 33. But this new co- or this is the covenant, the new covenant, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This is it. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. In short, the covenant is going to come inside them. I'm going to give them power to fulfill those conditions, to keep them, to become my holy priests. And in the process, they're going to experience Eden, where I will be their God, and they will be my people. This relationship will be healed. That's the new covenant. Now, when does this new covenant happen? The Last Supper. Luke 22, verse 20. Jesus took the wine, the cup, which represented the blood he was about to shed. And he said, drink this. This this cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. In other words, I'm about to go to the cross, disciples, drink this cup to remember that when I shed my blood, I am signing and sealing the covenant, the new covenant with you. Remember that a covenant is a relationship um, sealed in blood, initiated by God, right? Jesus is there initiating a covenant with them, and he went to go seal it with his blood. The new covenant is in play today. So... um, What is this new covenant, though? What does it? What are? What's the commission of this covenant? Is it the same as Israel? Exactly the same. First Peter chapter two verse nine quotes directly from Exodus nineteen. This is what Peter says to you, us, the church, me. He says, First Peter two nine, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. A people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who calls you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. In other words, the same thing He said, you're my royal priesthood, you're a holy nation church, and the reason you're that is because you're to go declare what I did for you. You're to go declare restoration that you've been brought back with God and that he has brought Eden inside of your hearts and to go share that with the nations. The same commission Israel's given is given to us and the same conditions, the Ten Commandments, those didn't go away either. Those still apply to us today. 
But I thought Jesus did away with the law. Not the conditions of his covenant. When Jesus said that I fulfilled the law, I take that to mean not I annihilated the law, like it's gone, forget about it, who cares about the Old Testament. I think what he means is that I didn't annihilate the law, I simply relocated the law in myself. I didn't just get rid of it, I just moved it into me. So that you no longer come to a law system to relate to God, you come to me to relate with God. You no longer have to try to keep this outward thing. You come to me for power and for help, and I cultivate the law within you. I rule your life. So, it's not that we're coming to something outside and obeying this rule system. We're coming to Christ and obeying Him. And as we do so, as we walk in obedience to Jesus, we are keeping the conditions of God's covenant. We are becoming that holy priesthood. As we walk in obedience with Jesus. So, the new covenant that the church is under is this covenant that God gave to Israel. The only reason it's called new is because Israel broke that one and they had no power given to keep it. But we've been given grace in Jesus to keep it. And so we come to Jesus and we trust Him and say, You want me to keep your covenant? I'm asking you for help. And we trust him for the help and he gives it to us. He writes the covenant on our hearts. He writes it inside of us. And it begins to become part of us. He brings Eden inside of us. So, as Israel was commissioned to bring restoration to the nations through their obedience to the covenant, we're doing the exact same thing today. It's through our obedience to Jesus, that we are becoming a holy priesthood. We're representing the restoration of Eden to the rest of the people around us. I wish I had the voice right now to scream and holler because this is a good place to do it, but I can't. (laughs) So I'll just say it nicely. (laughs) When Christians don't walk in obedience to God, you're not just not glorifying God, but you're breaking the covenant and you're not bringing people into restoration. You're not being that holy priesthood. I mean, you're completely missing everything. The rules God gives us, rules is a bad way to put it. They're conditions. They're conditions to help you keep the covenant of bringing exiled people into restoration with God. Walking in obedience is all about loving them and helping them see that there is an Eden that God wants to bring them to. But we just live our own lives and say, whatever, I am making the rules of my life. And we're not living in Eden ourselves and nobody sees it. And you're just letting them damn themselves because you don't care to obey Christ. When God gives this covenant to Israel... Basically, the rest of the Old Testament is showing us how well or how poorly they kept that covenant. And you'll see them do good at times, but ultimately just... We have a choice here tonight. When God gives us His covenant, He invites you into relationship with Him. Am I going to participate in the commission? Am I going to participate in obeying the conditions so that I can be used of God to bring restoration to the exiled people around me? So we have that choice, to obey or not to obey. That is the question. 
And here's the deal. Disobedience is only going to keep the cursed condition of exile alive. Because that's what started the whole exile. Adam disobeyed, got kicked out of the garden. And that's where we've been since. So you can keep going in disobedience and you're going to keep experiencing exile. That separation from God's goodness in your heart. That's yours going to be dry and in the wilderness. Or obedience to help reverse the curse. To become a blessing to those who are cursed. To become a representative, a cultivator of restoration to those who are in exile. That's the purpose of obedience. God was bringing Israel to Canaan and set basically the whole law saying, if you obey my, if you obey these conditions, you will be blessed. I'm going to make your land so fruitful. I'm literally going to turn it into Eden. But they didn't. They never experienced that because they didn't keep the covenant. Christian, if you keep God's covenant, you walk in obedience with Jesus, you're going to see fruit in your life. You're going to see the rivers of living water gushing forth from you. You're going to see Eden. You're going to feel it, the peace and pleasure inside of you. And you're going to see fruitfulness about you. And people are going to notice it. And all of you will become flourishing trees. And the whole goal here of tree of life will literally become that garden. And people will say, this is what we need. So, um, to show you one more time that the conditions are not for your bad, but for your good. Look at 20 verse 2. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So in short, it's as if God is foreseeing the fact that most of you, that a lot of you are thinking, heck with this. It's so much easier if I just live my own life. Forget this. I do what I want to do. I'm going to eat from the tree of knowledge. I'm going to be my own autonomous ruler. It's as if God foresaw that thought. And he answers by saying, yes, but remember, before I give you these conditions, remember that I'm giving them to you. (laughs) This is getting bad. I'm giving them to you because I brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So keep them and I will keep you from bondage. Break them. And I can't guarantee that you'll go back into exile and back into that oppressive bondage you had in Egypt. So therefore you're good. And therefore, the mission of God, the story of God, to restore all peoples unto Eden. That's why we ought to obey. And so we look to Christ, the holder of our new covenant, and say, Jesus, help me obey today. Because I want to be part of your mission. I want restoration for the nations. So use me the way you intended to use Israel. So, Lord, that's our prayer. That you would give us grace tonight. Give us grace. Give us power. Write your words in our hearts. Help us to walk in those, Father. And give us faith to trust you. Tonight we pray. Um, Lord, restore our friends and family and those who are still in exile from you, not walking with you. Um, use us to flourish and to be that example and to be that, that royal priesthood who calls them into your marvelous light. So restore, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.